This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. A Swedish journalist disappeared while profiling a famous engineer. Her last known location was aboard a submarine out at sea. This is the Kim Wall story. Hey, Megan. Hi, Aim. Every now and then, we cover a case that comes from our very own producer, James. And if you recall, James recommended this case a while back. He did. And I'm not sure why I didn't take it then, because as you're saying it now, I'm like, this is so interesting. And I remember how interested I was. So kudos to you for paying attention. (laughs) Well, you know what, Megan? The reason why I didn't take it initially is because it has been covered quite a bit. And you know, I tend to shy away from those. Mm -hmm. But as we have been doing this now, what, for over three years? Yes. I realize that there's still value in covering cases even when they have shown up on other podcasts. And our listeners tell us all the time, they always request cases that we've heard many times before. Yeah. I mean, I think we get a fair amount of requests that are cases that have been covered with just looking for a little bit deeper of a dive or, you know, a little bit more of an explanation about theory. So, yeah, I think it's great that you're doing this case. I think you and our listeners alike will learn some new things because I thought I knew the story. But as usual, there are many things that I didn't really know. That's not a surprise. I feel like this just happened when we covered the Amy Fisher story as well. Yes, you're absolutely right. I, I thought I knew that case, but Turns out I really didn't know anything. All right. Well, I am very curious to hear everything you're going to reveal today. Okay, so let's meet Kim. Kim Wall was born in 1987 and grew up in a small town in southern Sweden. Now, the town she was in was right next to the Orison Strait, which divides the borders of Denmark and Sweden. So how awesome of a location must that be? You're pretty much in two beautiful countries. Oh, yes. Kim's family and friends say that she was very driven and quite impressive. In fact, even as a young girl, when she wanted something, she would stop at nothing to achieve it. And oftentimes, even after she achieved her goal, she would work harder and dive deeper into her studies. After high school, she studied at the very prestigious London School of Economics. Wow. Yeah, well, listen to where she goes next, Megan. Columbia University School of Journalism, which is apparently referred to as the Oxbridge of Journalism. Now, Oxbridge, of course, being the combination of both Oxford and Cambridge. Did you ever know that? No, but that's incredible. Wow. Yeah. So she went there to get a master's in journalism. And not only did she achieve this goal, she graduated at the top of her class and with honors. What a successful young woman. So many would say that Kim was an amazing journalist and what made her so impressive was that she would look for quirky stories, but stories that had a bigger narrative. She would always deeply report her stories and made sure to never make a spectacle of the people who were reported on. Her love of people was always extremely clear. She had many interests. She traveled the world and people found her just a very interesting person. She was kind of that person described at parties. You would always want to talk to her. She always had some sort of interesting story to tell or some insightful opinion on a topic. And most of the stories that interested Kim were the ones that reported on subcultures and gender or really anything that had to do with social justice topics. And she would often travel 
and she would write about her experiences or what she learned while she was exploring new countries. Her stories were always topical and sent a larger message to her audience. I can see why you're interested in her in this case as well, because she did a lot of cases on social justice, which is an interest for you. Exactly. Yes. Kim was what is considered a freelance journalist, and this is pretty common these days. It's cheaper for companies to hire journalists who kind of they pick the stories they want to report and then they sell their stories and articles to different companies to be published. And this is exactly what Kim did. She wrote for some really popular media outlets, and you're going to recognize some of these. Vice, The Guardian, The New York Times, and South China Morning Post. Wow. So she was doing very well as a young journalist. And she's, at the time that we're talking about, she was just 30 years old. That's very impressive. Yeah. So we're talking now the summer of 2017. And Kim was staying in Copenhagen, Denmark, with her boyfriend, Ole Stobe, who was a Danish designer. And one day, while the two were walking around their neighborhood, they passed by a warehouse that caught her eye. You see, Kim was always looking around as she was out and about because she was always looking for something to report on. And it caught her eye when she saw a sign that said Rocket Madsen Space Lab. It was often referred to also as RML Space Lab. And this was known as a, quote, do-it-yourself rocket and submarine project. Now, I didn't know such a thing existed, to be honest. I was just going to say, my face was like, (laughs) do-it-yourself rocket and submarine? I would have had no idea. Yes. So basically here you had engineers who researched, developed, and built spacecraft and submarines. And this included the famous UC-3 Nautilus, which was invented in 2008. Now, Kim was pretty interested in this because similar to us never hearing about this, she probably never had heard about this either. So it sparked her interest. Mm -hmm. And she went in and she met Danish engineer and founder of the lab, Peter Mattson. Now, Peter worked with several others building the crafts in this space. Kim was very excited to speak with him, and she asked him if she could interview him, and he said that he would contact her, and the two can set up a time to interview, and he would even let her look around the UC3 Nautilus. Now, she was super excited about this because he was considered somewhat famous in the area because of these big projects that he worked on. Okay. Now, unfortunately, she hadn't heard from him in a couple of weeks, so she thought this was not going to happen. She thought this was just kind of another story that hits a dead end, and that would often happen in the world of journalism. Sure. But she was very excited when seemingly out of nowhere, Peter contacted her. Now, on August 10th, 2017, as Kim and Olay were getting ready to host a farewell party at their apartment, she received a text from Peter. What do you mean by farewell? Who's leaving? Where are they going? (laughs) Good question. So Kim and her boyfriend were getting ready to move to Beijing. In fact, they were leaving in just a few weeks to make the big move. Was this for one of their jobs or both? Or we don't know. You know, I'm not really sure, but I would imagine it had to do with one of their jobs. I mean, Kim traveled a ton, so maybe this was just another stop for them. I'm not really sure, Sure. but this was clearly a big move. Yes. And although they had this party plant and they had many friends coming over, Kim felt like she had to seize the opportunity since they would be moving soon. So Olay, her boyfriend, said, you know, he would go with her to meet Peter. But with all these people coming over, the pair decided it was probably better that he stay and then she could join the party later on. So the plan was for her to go be with Peter for about two hours and interview him. And then she would come back to join Olay and their party guests. So around 7 p.m., Kim boarded the submarine with Peter. 
Now, she was extremely excited, and someone actually snapped a photo of Kim on top of the submarine, smiling and looking both relaxed and excited. And this picture can be easily found online. Amy, did anyone else board with them, or was it just the two of them? It was just the two of them. Okay. So this was going to be an interview, and where better to do the interview than aboard the submarine that made him famous to begin with, right? Right. Unfortunately, this would be the last photograph of Kim ever to be taken. Now, a little while after she boarded the submarine, Kim would text her boyfriend and say, quote, I'm still alive, BTW, but I'm going down now. I love you. He bought coffee and cookies, though. Now, this is so heart-wrenching because as kind of given away at the beginning in the intro, Mm -hmm. this would be Kim's last interview. You know, Olay texted back but didn't get an answer, but this wasn't alarming because as we would expect, people probably don't get service once they go underwater. And Well, she was also in the middle of an interview. So. Yeah, so why would she text him, right? But she does say, I'm still alive, BTW. And yeah. we see this a lot with intuition, where people feel like something maybe isn't right. We had another case. Was it Sabrina Butler, where she said, I hope you're not a serial killer, and he turned out to be a serial killer? Yep, exactly. That's the case I'm thinking of. Yep. Yeah, and it makes it all the more tragic, unfortunately. It does. Olay continued to text Kim asking for updates, but she wasn't responding. And again, you know, at first he's thinking she probably didn't have service. She was busy with the interview. But after two hours turned into three hours, turned into four hours, and Kim did not come back to the farewell party, Olay began to really worry. And by midnight, once he still hadn't heard anything from her, he reported her missing. You see, Megan, the two were planning to leave very early the next morning to attend a wedding of a very close friend. And Olay knew Kim, and not only would Kim not miss the party, but she certainly would not jeopardize their attendance to a good friend's wedding. Right. She's a very reliable woman, I would say. Very. So I would have been extremely concerned as well. And for him, the only explanation was that something bad had happened. So he notified the police And the police started searching for the missing submarine with the two missing passengers aboard. Not long after Olay called the police, the UC-3 Nautilus was sighted by a merchant ship. However, the submarine did not have any satellite tracking and the police were not able to contact its engineer, Peter Madsen. Mm -hmm. Now, all night, staff on the harbor and the local police kept a watch for the submarine and searched the local area. It was assumed that there was maybe something going on with this submarine. Finally, at 10.30 the next morning, now on August 11th, the UC-3 Nautilus was spotted from a lighthouse. At this point, a rescue helicopter tried to radio Peter Madsen to ask him to come back to shore. But as they were just getting in contact, they watched as the submarine slowly sank below the water. But shockingly, Peter emerged and he was standing on top of the submarine. What? Yes. I didn't know this part. Yes. And a nearby fishing boat witnessed the sinking. So the four members on the boat were able to get near the scene and pull Peter out to safety. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So the obvious question is, Megan, well, where's Where's Kim? Kim? Yeah. So we have the submarine and we have Peter. But as was known to many, Kim was on that submarine with Peter. Now, the fishing boat took Peter to a nearby port. And waiting for him were the police and many reporters asking what had happened and why the sub had sank. Because, again, he was considered somewhat famous. It's a submarine. So the media was very interested in this story. Of course. And in the interviews, Peter simply said that the sub had sank because of some part being broken on board. 
However, the police would come out and say soon after, quote, the sinking of the submarine was allegedly a consequence of a deliberate act. Ooh. But more on this in a minute, because let's talk about the burning question. Where was Kim? When the UC-3 Nautilus was resurfaced, the police searched the submarine hoping to find any sign of the young woman. But there was absolutely nothing. I mean, that's clearly the burning question. Where is Kim? So what did Peter say? (laughs) Okay, well, at first, Peter denied being with Kim at all. But he quickly changed her story because... There were many witnesses that saw him leave with Kim. So first, who's Kim? And then he changed his story and said he dropped her off at a restaurant. However, CCTV showed absolutely no evidence that this was true. Yeah. And now Kim's family and friends were frantic and the community rallied together to search for Kim. But there was absolutely no sign of Kim. So, of course, the police are processing the submarine to look for signs of Kim, and they did find that there was some blood that matched Kim. And it becomes clear that Kim was definitely on that submarine, as there was DNA. Does Peter have a lawyer at this point? Is he refusing to talk? Is he cooperating? Like, what's going on? Yeah, so he seems to be cooperating. But remember, he is saying that he dropped her off, and that's that. So... The police are processing the submarine. Meanwhile, they have a search warrant for Peter's computers and phones. And, you know, they're processing things. Family and friends are frantically looking for Kim. Okay. And there would be no sign of her until 11 days later on August 21st. And this is when a cyclist on a nearby beach stumbled upon a female torso that had washed up on the beach. And unfortunately, an autopsy would confirm that the torso, in fact, belonged to Kim Wall. The ME report would also report that the torso had 15 stab wounds, mostly in the genital area. In addition, metal had been wrapped around the torso, which police believe was put there purposely to prevent the body from floating to the surface and from being discovered. The autopsy further revealed that her arms and legs were not missing due to the result of an accident or perhaps being eaten by a marine animal. In fact, they were deliberately cut off. So this was clear, Megan. The state of the torso confirmed to police that what happened to Kim Wall was indeed a homicide. Yes, it seems that way. Yes. But, you know, to find out who did this to her, how and, you know, to figure out the whole story around this horrific crime, they needed to locate the rest of Kim's body. So Swedish and Danish police worked alongside each other in the search for Kim. Swedish police actually used cadaver dogs to search the beaches And amazingly, cadaver dogs were able to alert their handlers to the smell of decomposition. And divers were able to then recover two plastic bags. One bag contained Kim's head and legs. And another bag contained clothing that Kim was wearing that evening and also a knife. And Megan, both bags, just like the torso, had been weighed down with pieces of metal piping. Police were quick to determine that the knife was the same one used to inflict the stab wounds to Kim's torso. And just six days later, police divers were able to recover a saw, which was later confirmed to have been used to dismember Kim. That's some pretty fantastic cadaver dog work and police work. It's an awful way that they had found her, but I'm glad that they were able to recover her. That's not it, because after another month of searching, they found both of Kim's arms in the bay. That was the last pieces of the body. So now with the entire body assembled, pathologists were fully able to determine that Kim Wall had been murdered, dismembered, and discarded on the night of August 10th. 
the same night she went to meet Peter Madsen on his UC Nautilus. Well, I'd say the only bit of good news here is that we know who did it. Well, it seems that way, right? I just mean in terms of the suspects and yes. where to start, we know exactly where to begin and we know who likely Yeah, is I mean, it's very clear that Peter Madsen was the last person to be seen with Kim Wall. Spring is in the air and that means it's time for a refresh. I'm talking about luxuriously soft and stylish loungewear, pajamas, and bedding from Cozy Earth. I'd live in this loungewear full-time if that was an option. In fact, it's pretty much the option right now, just so you know. I actually have a couple of sets of the bamboo pajama sets. I have both the long sleeve one for when it's a little bit colder, and I have the short sleeve one. Because now that I'm pregnant, I'm sleeping a little bit hotter these days, and between the short sleeve pajama set and my bamboo sheets, my sleep is like a dream. You literally can't go wrong with Cozy Earth. And the reason why is because Cozy Earth products are made with soft, temperature-regulating viscose from bamboo. This is the secret ingredient. My favorite products are the sheets because the sheets are my every night sleeping. I have finally found the sheets that I sleep the most comfortably in and especially because I sleep cool and that's what I need for a comfortable night of sleep. Best of all, Cozy Earth products come with a 100-night sleep trial. That means that you can sleep on it and wash it for up to 100 nights. And if you're not in love, you can return it for a full refund. Fall in love with everyday luxury at Cozy Earth. Go to CozyEarth.com and enter our promo code CRIME, C-R-I-M-E, at checkout for up to 35% off. That's CozyEarth.com, promo code CRIME. Now, as I mentioned, Madsen was known as sort of a celebrity in Denmark. He was a self-proclaimed inventrepreneur. Now, this is someone who's both an entrepreneur and an inventor. Mm -hmm. And he focused his engineering skills on ocean exploration and traveling to space. I know the professional, but do we know anything else about him, his background, even criminal history, relationships, anything? So we know that he was born in 1971 and his parents got divorced when he was just six years old. Now, he had a bit of a tough time. He had three half siblings. And after the divorce, his mother left with his three other siblings, leaving him to live with his father. Oh. And unfortunately, his father was very violent and a very strict disciplinarian. His father was very interested in war and rockets interests that he would pass down to his six-year-old son, Peter. In fact, Megan, the two would often make explosives together in the backyard. Hmm. Okay. Do we know why she left Peter behind? From what I understand, the reason she left Peter behind is because the father was very abusive to the three other children. And Peter's mother believed that since Peter was biologically related to this violent man, that he would be spared. Okay. Unfortunately, I don't think that was the case, though. Okay. Peter had a very big interest in war and in explosives. He would make rockets with his father. And Peter would eventually, you know, follow this interest when he started studying engineering in college. But get this, Megan, he dropped out of college because he believed he learned enough to be able to make submarines and rockets. Now, you're starting to get a sense for who this guy is. Right. Okay. You see a little bit of a sense of grandiosity here? I, I do. Although, in 
<laughs> fairness now, didn't he actually do that? Built a rocket? He sure did. I mean... <laughs> or built a submarine. I mean, I don't know how he did it. I'm sure he had help, but... He was a smart guy. You know, to be able to build rockets and submarines, you must be a genius, right? But unfortunately, you know, he was very headstrong. He did not like to be contradicted. He was very difficult to work with. He had dreams of building a rocket and he would partner with, actually at one point he partnered with a former NASA contractor. But this gentleman said that they couldn't work together because, you know, everything had to be done Peter's way. And anytime he was contradicted, he would get angry and really no one was able to work with him. So he would end up spending a lot of time working on his own to achieve these goals. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that at all. Yeah, actually, many people would say that he was just angry with everyone. Everyone he met, he had a hard time getting along with, and he just seemed angry all the time. So after building the UC3 Nautilus in 2008, Madsen started to tackle his dreams of building a rocket. And that's when he formed what was called the Copenhagen Orbitals, which was, quote, a collective of amateur rocket makers funded by donations. And they would work together with the aim of launching a manned rocket into space. However, this co-op dismantled in 2014 because yet again, Peter and his co-workers could not get along. And there were just too many disagreements, which many people blamed on Peter's behavior. Although, of course, Peter would blame others for these issues. So now on his own, Peter created his own company called Rocket Matson Space Laboratory. And this is that warehouse where he first met Kim. Now, this kind of brings us up to present time when Matson was rescued from that sinking submarine on August 11th. Megan, when he was rescued, he was almost immediately arrested for negligent manslaughter. And this was because he was the last person that Kim was seen with. In subsequent interviews, you had asked me before, like, what was he saying? Well, he yeah. was giving many different versions. Remember, at first he said he didn't even know Kim. Then he said, okay, he was with her, but he dropped her off at that harbor and says he has no idea what happened to her. But then, after more pressing, Peter said that there was a terrible accident on the submarine and that Kim had hit her head on the hatch door on the way down into the submarine. And he says that, he discovered her bleeding, he discovered she was deceased, and he felt that he had to get rid of her body in the bay. He says that he panicked and needed to get rid of her body. Now, Megan, remember, all the body parts had been discovered. So right. as they're getting new information, first her torso, there's one story. But then they were able to show that she was dismembered, another story, right? The story is changing as Peter's being shown different evidence. You know, for someone who's supposedly a genius, he's not too smart. He's not too bright about covering up a crime. He almost believes that what he says is truth and people will believe him. Now, the problem is, Megan, that once they recovered Kim's skull, they were able to show that there is no way this 150-pound hatch door had hit her on the head because her skull did not show signs of this sort of trauma. Mm -hmm. So now Peter had to change his story yet again. Of course. So now he said... That while he was on the deck of the submarine, Kim was in the engine room exploring and gathering information for her article. He says suddenly that's when the air pressure on board plummeted and the engine room filled with noxious fumes. Now he says he realized she was trapped inside, but he was not able to get to her right away. And when he was finally able to get there, he found her dead lying on the floor. 
now saying, Megan, that she had died from carbon monoxide poisoning. At this point, I would be curious how he explains these changing stories and why he dismembered her. That's a good question, Megan, because he says he could not get her body through the hatch of the submarine. So he had to dismember her because that is the only way he could remove her body. In fact, he said the reason he kept changing his story to answer your first question was that he didn't want the family to have to hear what happened to their loved one. I'm getting annoyed over here. Uh, your The story, this guy is really annoying me, I just have to say. <laughs> Yep, he says, so basically he's saying he had to dismember her because that's the only way he could remove her body and that he had to throw her overboard because he didn't know what else to do. He panicked. Right. And the reason he kept changing his story is he was trying to spare the family. Now, all of this is extremely frustrating because it's clear this man's lying. And <laughs> as we all see here, this is all bullshit. And the police were able to see through it as well. Does he have any history of assault against women or any allegations that you know of? We're going to get there in just a moment, but I okay. first want to tell you, Peter has all these narratives. So let's hear what the prosecution is saying, because, of course, they have their own theory as well. Now, they believe that Peter Madsen sexually assaulted, murdered and dismembered Kim Wall in cold blood. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of evidence to support this theory. Sure. For one, Megan, police discovered that Madsen had watched many snuff films. Yeah, uh, a snuff film is actually a film that portrays or involves actual murder. Yeah, and they were able to find out that not only did Peter often watch videos of women being tortured and killed, and this would be on his workshop computer, so there are many, many mm -hmm. videos that he was watching, they were able to see that that night, right before Kim arrived at the submarine, he had watched a video of a woman being decapitated. Unfortunately, that does not surprise me. No, it doesn't. And Megan, I don't think you'll also be surprised to know that Peter had asked several other women to join him on the submarine that same week, but they all turned him down for various reasons. So it is clear that this is a man who felt the need to carry out this heinous act. And he was just trying to get to any woman he could. And unfortunately, Kim was the woman who accepted because she was reporting on this, this story. She thought that she was getting the interview of really the interview of a lifetime for her. Sure. It's very obvious that he invited Kim to that submarine to sexually assault her, dismember her, and then he discarded her body like trash. Not only did he take cookies and coffee that she had, you know, Kim had told her boyfriend, he had also taken a screwdriver, a saw and metal piping on board. I would agree with the prosecution's theory yep. 100%. You know, that's not all they found, though. They did not find any traces of carbon monoxide in Kim's lungs. So there's no scientific evidence to even support these outlandish stories of the carbon monoxide poisoning. But of course, Megan, no one really believed him to begin with. Sure. Unfortunately, yeah. you know, the prosecution even admitted that they did not know exactly how Kim Wall was murdered but they were very positive that it was premeditated and that there was a sexual motive. They were also able to retrieve Kim's underwear and they found traces of semen that belonged to Peter. I'm sorry, didn't she also have a number of stab wounds? Yeah, and they recovered, remember, the knife. What I'm saying is, if they're saying they don't know their theory of murder, he stabbed her. 
Yes, but they're not sure. They weren't able to say if she died from the stab wounds or if she died from suffocation or some other means. Okay, but they're able to show that somebody stabbed her multiple times, oh, which yes. directly refutes any story about blunt force trauma to the head or carbon monoxide. Yes, but I guess with the defense, you know, they were still trying to say that perhaps maybe she died from carbon monoxide and then maybe he mutilated the body. Okay. So they were maybe trying to reduce his culpability in some way, but clearly that was all ludicrous. Okay. Peter Matson was convicted of murder, aggravated sexual assault, and the indecent handling of a corpse. And he was sentenced to life in prison. Now, I want to point out just how rare murder is in Denmark. Denmark is known as one of the safest countries in the world. Mm -hmm. In my research, I found that there were only 39 homicides in 2021. And Megan, that is less homicides than the state of Texas has per day. So we're talking a very low murder rate. Yeah, I believe the murder rate currently in the United States is between 16,000 and 20,000 people per year. So take that next to 39. Yeah, I mean, there's about five times more murders in the U.S. And this is per capita as compared to Denmark. Also, the punishments are quite different in Denmark. Number one, they do not have the death penalty. The people that are convicted of homicide get anywhere from five years to life. Now, that is a big range. Wow. But what I find even more interesting, Megan, is that their life sentences, typically individuals can apply for parole after just 12 years in most cases. Wow. So, for example, like in New Jersey, when we see people sentenced to life, that's usually at least 25 to sometimes 30 years mm -hmm. before someone is eligible for parole. Right. Not surprisingly, Peter Madsen tried to appeal his life sentence in September of 2018, but his appeal was denied. Just out of curiosity, was there ever any type of psychological evaluation or assessment conducted? A psych evaluation done by the courts described Peter as a narcissistic psychopath and that he lacked empathy, but they noted that he was not delusional. That's not surprising. All right. So he's not suffering from any type of mental health disorder. He's suffering from personality disorders, Correct. which are very different. Correct. That's why he never, you know, pled insanity. We didn't see anything like that. But it's clear that we're dealing with someone who has psychopathic tendencies here. Yeah, I think so. Also, I mean, I think the narcissism is evident from very early on. Soon after he was sentenced, a Danish newspaper reported that Peter Madsen actually confessed to murdering Kim Wall, and this would be in 20 hours of recorded phone conversations that was conducted from his jail cell. Wow. Now, a journalist had asked Peter straight out if he had killed Kim Wall. Allegedly, he answered, there is only one who is guilty, and that is me. The reason I say allegedly is I haven't actually heard these recordings. Okay. So it seems that Peter, although he's confessing to murdering Kim Wall, it doesn't sound like he's showing any remorse whatsoever. There's zero empathy. There's zero remorse. That's because he's not capable of feeling remorse. If you look at his statements early on, he confesses to dismembering and discarding the body, but he never actually confesses to murdering her. Okay. And that's the interesting thing here because... He's making it sound as if dismembering and getting rid of the body was done for utilitarian purposes. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like he's the hero here because he had to like dispose of the body. He didn't want to hurt the family. I'm sure that's the way he's framed it. You had said before earlier that he seems to believe things he says because he's pathological. So that makes sense as well. He absolutely is. 
Peter showed up in the news a few years later on October 20th, 2020, because he tried to escape from prison. And he did so by using a fake gun and a fake bomb tied around his waist. Now, luckily, he was apprehended only about 500 yards from the prison. But this just shows the kind of person Peter Matson is. Luckily, he got an additional 21 months, which, again, just shows the difference between Denmark and the United States. Because, Megan, if somebody tried to leave prison after being sentenced to life for murder, do you think they would get more than 21 months in the United States? Just for escape, the typical sentence is five years, yes. and that doesn't involve a bomb or yes. any other you know, explosive device. So, yeah, I would say they'd be looking at probably an additional 15 to 20. Yes. But either way, you know, he is still going to be eligible for parole when he is quite young. And hopefully it will be denied, but he is eligible in Denmark. He'll be going up. Well, now it would be after you know, add on another almost two years. But this is not somebody that I think will ever see the light of day, but it is possible. No way. He's not getting parole. I know it's possible, but there's no way anyone's paroling this guy. And I I really hope that is true. Before we talk about Peter Matson and kind of dive into the pathology, I want to just take a moment to talk about Kim's legacy. Kim's family and friends remember her fondly and often do interviews about how kind, eccentric, and dedicated she was as both a journalist and a friend. Kim's parents have also set up the Kim Wall Memorial Fund, which helps to raise money for future female journalists. And if our listeners are interested in learning about this grant and more about Kim Wall's legacy, then they can go to rememberingkimwall.com. In addition, in October of 2017, Kim was posthumously nominated for the Outstanding Achievement Award of Journalist of the Year. Kim has left behind a legacy of dedicated and factual journalism and serves as an example for young women in journalism all around the world. What an excellent role model. All right, Megan. So the big question here is, how did this happen? How can we understand Peter Madsen? I mean, as we mentioned, it's clear that he has psychopathic tendencies. But let's talk about, we've talked about it in previous episodes, the psychopathy checklist or the hair psychopathy checklist, Mm -hmm. the PCLR, the revised version. When we look at the items on the PCLR scale, Peter Madsen is checking a lot of boxes here. So there's the glibness and the superficial charm. Mm -hmm. Grandiose sense of self-worth, I think, is one of the major things that we have seen throughout Peter's life and what we have learned about him. Pathological lying, manipulative, lack of remorse or guilt, Mm -hmm. impulsivity, failure to accept responsibility for his own actions, and the list goes on. I found this super interesting. Emma Sullivan, a documentary filmmaker, interviewed Peter Madsen because she was working on a documentary about him and him building the submarine. In fact, she had conducted an interview with him just hours before he met with Kim Wall. It's what they call, quote, an accidental portrait of a psychopath. And so in this documentary, you can see interviews with Peter himself. There's interviews with family and friends and just people talking about Peter. And again, this was before this heinous murder. He so clearly fits in all of these categories we're talking about. Now, that documentary is called Into the Deep. Have you seen it, Megan? No, I hadn't even heard of it. But now, I mean, obviously, I want to go see it immediately. Yeah, it's only been out for a couple of months. And I know James has seen the documentary. And something that stuck out to me was he mentioned how 
they were talking to the land crew when this submarine was missing. And, you know, at first, how everyone's just assuming it was accidental. And then people's reactions when more information comes out. So it's definitely on the top of my very long list of documentaries that I need to watch. Oh, certainly. I'm definitely going to see it very soon. Yeah. So I'm sure there's other theories, but I think this is one of those cases where the psychodynamic perspective probably lends itself the most to the explanation. We're dealing with a narcissist who had traits of antisocial personality disorder and many psychopathic traits. But psychodynamic also lends to childhood factors. Yes. Also the childhood trauma from his violent father. So what I'm seeing here, we don't always have this information available and I could be wrong, but what I'm seeing for sure is a violent father and also abandonment by a mother. So these are two traumatizing events that happen. I wouldn't be surprised if he resented both parents. I I think I failed to mention, but I recall reading that it was a very contentious divorce. And his father used to say, you can go see your mother, but don't come back here. Right. So his parents pretty much said, you need to choose one. And for a, a child, six, seven, eight years old, having to choose between two parents, that's clearly going to make a mark. And I would also add that if his father was violent, then he learned violence in the home against women from a very early age. You know, maybe even genetic perspective. Right. So there's just many theories here. But Megan, I think it's hard to say if the system got it right, because this is somewhat of a recent case. So if Peter Madsen gets out on parole after just 12 years or even 15, 17 years, I'm going to say the system did not get it right. I think this is somebody who is a danger to society who should not ever see the light of day. Yeah, I think if he ever gets out, the system got it wrong. I think he will always pose a danger to society. And the only way to remove that danger is to keep him permanently incapacitated. And I mean, permanently incarcerated. I agree. And I hope we are not doing a follow up on this case because then that would mean that he got out. So let's hope that he is, right. you know, he's where he deserves to be. And I just want to, again, highlight that rememberingkimwall.com is a website that is dedicated to Kim's memory. And people can donate to the Kim Wall Memorial Fund on that website and learn more about the grant and scholarship opportunities for young women in journalism. I think that's wonderful. I hope that Kim's legacy will always overshadow what happened to her. That's why I like to end on that note about remembering Kim and not leaving our final note on the offender in this case. So please check out that website. Megan, before we go today, though, we have a couple of questions from our supporters. Oh, okay. Let's hear them. One of our questions, I know you have an answer to because it has to do with a case that I know you're working on right now. Oh, okay. So the question is, what are your thoughts on the Stephen Avery case? Do you think he's guilty? And do you think Brendan Dassey is guilty? Well, I don't think it is a spoiler alert since we recently released an episode on this case. And I think the evidence shows that Avery was involved. So if you are interested and you haven't listened to that case, go back. The episode aired on Halloween. It's episode 151, and it is about Teresa Halbeck's murder. All right, our final question. What case has made the biggest impact on your life? Megan, if you recall an episode, actually it was episode 49, almost two years ago here, where I covered Jennifer Thompson, and she was the victim and an eyewitness in the story of Ronald Cotton, if you recall. Yes, and of course. I won't give it away for those of you who haven't listened, but... They wrote a book, both Jennifer Thompson and Ronald Cotton. And I read the book several times and it has had a profound impact on my life for sure. Annoyingly, I have three answers here, but I'll try to keep this short. (laughs) 
The first one is obviously the Melanie McGuire case. And the reason why I say the impact is because it really changed the course of what I do and Mm -hmm. my career in cases that interest me. So I think that was impactful in terms of opening the door for us Mm -hmm. to look at these cases on women in crime. The second case, and I've said it before, that is always devastating and I can't ever let go for some reason is Chris Newsom and Shannon Christian. Mm -hmm. I think about that case all the time. It broke my heart. And the third case is one that is not something we handled here, but when I was a federal probation officer, I handled a case of an identity theft. And it sounds like it would have been not that impactful, but it was a father who stole his son's identity Mm. and the profound impact that it had on his life was so devastating and heartbreaking to me. And I just found it so hard to believe that a parent would have wounded his child in this way. It has always stuck with me and always made me realize that while we think certain crimes aren't going to have you know, certain effects, we tend to look at violent crimes as the most serious. In these cases, the, the ripple effect can be equally as damaging. Thank you so much to our supporters. And thank you all so much for listening today. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include The Guardian, Inside Edition, Esquire, BBC, and news.com.au.